Welcome back to Radio Physics, a collaboration between uh, the Aspen Center for Physics and KDNK Community Access Radio in Carbondale, Colorado. And today we have two high school students and a visiting physicist. Um, Nicholas Rod is here as the organizer of a winter conference at the Aspen Center for Physics, and he'll tell a little bit about that. And we have two high schoolers from Aspen High School, Elijah Goldman and Kenton Kowar. And Kenton, let's start with you. Tell a little bit about your interest in science, and then you can introduce Nicholas. Yes, my name is Kenton Kowar, and I am a senior at Aspen High School. I am currently enrolled in IB Physics Year 2, and I've participated in many of the physics opportunities that the high school has provided. I'm looking to go into college for physics and computer science. And Elijah Goldman is my classmate. Um, yeah, so I'm Elijah Goldman. I'm also taking uh, IB physics year two um, at Aspen High School. Uh, I'm not, I haven't really decided what I'm going to do in college yet, but I am really interested in theoretical physics, primarily like particle physics. So I'm hoping that that's something that I get to uh, pursue in college. And oh, sorry, I get to yeah, sorry. Joining with us is Nick Rod. If you mind telling us your school curriculum of what you have done and where you currently work, a bit about your physics work uh, currently. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I, I could say a lot about this, but let me try and keep it brief. Uh, so uh, my name's Nick Broad. I'm a professor at uh, CERN in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, so I'm, I'm just starting to get over the jet lag now, but uh, spending some time outside of Aspen is really helping with that. So my, my path to where I am at the moment, uh, as my accent uh, betrays, I did not grow up in Switzerland. I grew up in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and from there, I went to the US and uh, did my graduate school studies at MIT. Then I spent some time on the uh, West Coast at UC Berkeley. And then since then, I have um, uh, ended up at, at CERN. Uh, so I could, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say along here. Uh, I think uh, I was, I started out a little bit like Elijah, where I, I was quite interested in physics, but wasn't sure what I was going to do. But here I am now. So maybe I could come back to that later. But just in terms of my research, what I spend day to day trying to do is figuring out what the missing mass in our universe is. So there's really compelling evidence that everything we see around us uh, is not all that there is out there, that there is this huge additional component that we call dark matter. But we're quite ignorant as to what that is. Um, but I think there's a lot of interesting ways of tackling this. And this is what I spend my days thinking about. Um, so, like, I feel like right now, the forefront of physics, a lot of the stuff that's going on is happening at CERN. That's where kind of the most recent big discoveries have happened. So uh, what, like, advice would you give to high schoolers that are starting off in science, especially if they kind of want to go in a direction that you did where they're really at the, like, cutting edge of, like, physics that's going on right now? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And there's so many different factors in, involved in this. I think one of the broader pieces of advice I would give is during your undergraduate, try and get involved in some research. I think that um, there's quite a disconnect uh, there's certainly overlap and, and there's very important parts to this, but research is somewhat different to classes. 
Um, and, and I would actually think, I think something that pe people have a very big misconception about with science is that they think that humanities are, are creativity and, and science is much more analytic. And you're just, you're just doing these calculations, you know what the answer is, you're working towards it. But actually, um, uh, science involves an enormous amount of creativity because we have these problems that we have no idea how to solve and lots of people have thought about them. So you usually need to bring some creativity um, to this problem if you're going to be able to tackle it. And so I think actually getting some experience about what real life research research is, um, is like is critical to determining whether or not you'll actually enjoy the day-to-day -day life of a scientist. And I think it, because it can be a bit different from what you're doing in classes. And so my impression is that the US does a fantastic job at this, where there are lots of opportunities to get involved in undergraduate research. Uh, and I would say you might want to do string theory or whatever. It's probably not what I would recommend trying to start as, as for undergraduate research, uh, because you'll probably end up spending most of your time learning background material. I think just getting involved in a lab, doing some experimental work is really important because no matter where you end up in physics, ultimately this science must connect to reality. And I think having some understanding of how experiment operates, some of the real realities of this, no matter where that, that is, um, it is very valuable. So just to give one concrete piece of advice, I'd, I'd recommend that. Thank you. Uh, jumping into the physics-related questions, I have a very specific question about dark matter for you. Okay. So as a particle physics uh, physicist background that you have, you deal with particles, and we found out that particles behave like waves as well. As dark matter surrounds a specific space, does it have probability fields like an electron around an atom of where it most likely will be or is it a cloud of general mass good so the answer is in some senses it could be both um, uh, and the question is because we're so unsure about what dark matter would, would behave like um, uh, it, depending upon the different thoughts that we've had it could potentially be in each of these regimes so I guess maybe just to, to build on the type of idea that you're, you're bringing there's like this fundamental notion in quantum mechanics that everything that is a particle can also behave like a wave um, but actually what really dictates how wave-like it is in some senses uh, is the mass or the energy that is associated with it. So if it's very, very energetic, it tends to behave much more like a, uh, a particle. And if it's very, very light it tend, or very low energy, it um, uh, behaves like a wave. So actually there's a phenomenon that you, you may be familiar with where this same thing is borne out. And this is the electromagnetic spectrum of which one fraction of this is the light that we see all around us. Uh, so if you go to very, very energetic light particles, which we call photons, then you really think of these as just discrete particles flying around. This is, for example, gamma rays or X-rays, which we use for medical imaging, for instance. You really think of these as individual states flying around. But if we move to much lower energies, then you should really think about this thing as behaving more like this delocalized wave, which I think is what you were getting at, Kenton. Uh, and there, the, the classic example of this is radio waves. We do not see an individual radio photon. Instead, we, we see very much an oscillating wave that comes into us. Um, and then there's this transition region, which is in some senses actually where some of, some of the optical spectrum lives. So because we're so unsure about dark matter, you could ask, well, is it a very energetic thing or is it a very low energy or, or more measured in, in, in terms of how much mass it has? And the answer is it could be either one. So if dark matter is this exceptionally heavy particle, then it would behave like these quite localized uh, particles that are flying around, like a gas of states. But if instead it was exceptionally light, it would be quite delocalized. Uh, and actually you can push this idea to its extreme and say, well, 
if dark matter was extremely light, it would be so delocalized that it wouldn't fit in the observable universe. Uh, or getting more specific, it wouldn't fit in observable galaxies. And actually, this is one of the things we do know for certain about dark matter is it can't be too light because it has to fit in galaxies because we see galaxies and that they have dark matter in them. But that, that, that turns out to be an extremely weak bound. Uh, it, it means that um, uh, we can only constrain dark matter to be 10 to the minus 31 times the mass of a proton. So that's 10 with 31 zeros after it um, lighter than a proton. But it's still a bound. It's something we can say for certain about dark matter. But yeah, that's an excellent question. So hopefully that somewhat answered it. Yes, it did. Thank you. Uh, so I have a, another question about dark matter. Um, so we've been kind of learning recently in physics class about different uh, proton or different particles um, and kind of the acts that those have on uh, the world around them, like protons are light and that uh, there's gravitons that they're looking for right now. Um, and that there were kind of these equations that assumed what gravity would look like. And now gravity isn't looking like how you expected it to. Um, and that is where dark matter would play in is are you sh uh, like when you're thinking about dark matter, it seems like you're thinking about it as like extra mass somewhere where you wouldn't expect it to be that you can't see. Is there a chance that instead it's like a different field or a different particle within the gravitational uh, like field that exists in our universe that since you haven't discovered gravitons yet, you don't fully understand gravity. Could it be just gravity acting different than how it's been theorized in the past? Yeah, in, in excellent question. In principle, the answer is yes. And because we don't know the answer yet, I have to be honest and say that um, it, it could either be a modification to gravity or it could be some additional particle we've added in. Uh, I haven't heard of an option C yet. Um, as far as we're aware, these are the, the two paths forward. And I maybe won't go down this path too much, but uh, there was this beautiful example brought up in the public lecture yesterday where both resolutions have, have played out in reality. Uh, so for example, I believe it was the, um, the discovery of Neptune was actually based on our, we were looking at the, the motion of uh, Uranus, and uh, from that, uh, the perturbations in that, people were actually able to predict um, that there had to be some new planet out there, and, and this was how um, Neptune was discovered, I believe, or maybe I've swapped the, the planets around there. Um, but then another example of this was the, um, the precession of the orbit of Mercury around the sun. It, it didn't match with uh, our current theory of gravity, and we thought, uh, well, maybe there's another planet there, but actually the resolution there was that the theory of gravity was wrong, and it was general relativity that Einstein showed us or taught us in 1915 um, that actually once you add in the corrections to gravity, uh, you don't need this additional planet. You can explain the precession. So there is historical analog of it being either way. And I would certainly say when it was first introduced, people thought broadly about the possibility that it actually could be some long-range modification to, to, um, uh, to gravity because at the solar system level, everything seems to be working pretty well. Maybe at these larger scales, we start to see some deviation from this. But as um, uh, the only way of knowing this ahead of time is to let the experiment um, weigh in on this. Uh, and so while, as far as we can tell so far, we have models where you just add some new particle, like the, the proton or the electron to the particles we know, and you can explain everything. There are models which just so far fit essentially every piece of data that we have. No one, as far as I'm aware, has written down a modified theory of gravity that can explain all of the observations that, that we've been able to, to collect at this stage. And just to give you some intuition about why this is so challenging. So if you think about modifying gravity, the, the basic idea is that gravity is, is how um, different 
particles that we can see um, uh, that the strength of the interaction between these, but it's always something to do with the, the stuff that we can see. Um, the problem is if you then go, for example, and look at that, there's this famous example of the, the bullet cluster where you have two galaxies colliding. Um, you can see that all the stuff that we can see with our eye gets trapped in the middle because we can just see this in our telescopes. But then we can measure where is actually the gravity of this, this object. And we can see that it's become delocalized from the mass. The gravity has just passed through. We can measure this through the, the gravitational bending of light. And so whatever is happening has delocalized from the, the, the mass that is there. So you cannot fix this. this um, you cannot explain this by just modifying the strength of the force between um, two objects. You need to add something else. And actually, like, a lot of the modified gravity models that are most successful not only have modified gravity, they also have dark matter. But then by a sort of Occam's razor argument, I would say so far, I would, I would just keep the dark matter and not in the, add in the modified gravity. Anyway, this is a very long uh, story I could go down, but let, let me leave it there for the moment. I have a question about your data uh, collection. Just where and how do you collect your data and what do you use to collect it? Right, yeah, so personally, um, I don't think I would trust myself um, uh, with, with an experimental setup. I, I mostly do pen and paper and, and um, uh, calculations and, and, and analyses on my computer, but I do actually interact with data regularly. So I can tell you where um, the, the experts are collecting that data that I then analyze. But most of what I work with is actually high energy um, uh, high energy telescopes. So for example, we know like the Hubble telescope uh, has collected these beautiful optical images um, that we see. But as I was mentioning earlier, there's a full spectrum of electromagnetism, which depends upon how energetic the photons are. And I've spent a lot of my time thinking at, um, of X-ray and gamma ray telescopes. Uh, and so many of these are actually space-based telescopes, just like the Hubble is that, that are uh, um, uh, floating around uh, the earth. And these, these are just wonderful instruments. Like now NASA has this fantastic telescope called the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope, which collects gamma rays um, coming from all around the universe into the instrument. It, it downloads it onto Earth, and I can download it onto my computer two hours after the, the photons are collected. So this is just this amazing resource that really you know, opens up the, the possibility of you know, a broad range of scientists testing this. And while the Fermi Collaboration themselves have done some amazing work on this, I'd say even some of the most exciting discoveries of the Fermi Telescope weren't made by members of the collaboration. They were made by other people downloading the data and, and then playing around with it um, themselves. So that's one facet of my research. Another facet um, is that I'm very interested in looking for this idea that dark matter is a wave. Uh, and there you build um, very, very sensitive detectors looking for tiny, tiny modifications to our understanding of electromagnetism, uh, which is technically called Maxwell's equations, which I'm not sure you may have briefly mentioned in your physics classes so far. But basically these detectors are looking for some tiny weight oscillating um, modification to Maxwell's equations. So that those are very different, but these are the two experiments I spend most of my time thinking about. As a brief follow-up, you mentioned that you were looking on the high end of the energy spectrum, yet you were also looking to see if dark matter behaved like a wave. Earlier, you mentioned that if it has a large amount of mass or a large amount of energy, then it can behave as much like a wave. Can you explain the balance between that that you are researching? 
Yeah, good. So I think that what I'm doing in my research is somewhat um, uh, representative of what's happening in the field of a whole is that we don't know what dark matter is, so we're thinking broadly about it. So it, it is absolutely two different dark matter candidates that would appear in these different instruments. So on, on the, for the wave-like end, it would be these very, very light or, or very low energy um, dark matter particles. But at the highest end, it would be these very, very high energy um, states. And just to maybe build on this a bit, like there's, if you're not aware of it, there's, there's this... Um, uh, beautiful example, like we have seen unbelievably energetic particles um, uh, throughout the universe. So for instance, you can, uh, you know that you can calculate the kinetic energy of a particle as like a half mv squared. I mean, Einstein teaches us that there are corrections to this, but that you can roughly think of it that way. So for instance, uh, if you have um, a, a very small mass, you imagine you have to be going unbelievably quickly to have a, a, a large kinetic energy to compensate for this. But we have actually seen protons hitting the atmosphere of the Earth that have the same kinetic energy as a baseball being pitched by, um, uh, look, I'm, I'm not in America, but I think it's the major league baseball pitchers. I'm not going to commit to any names there. But um, like the idea is that you can have an individual proton, which I, I will tell you is significantly lighter than a baseball, and yet it has the same amount of kinetic energy. So, I mean, there are these dramatic events that are happening throughout the universe. And one of the questions is, is any of the things that we're seeing there related to dark matter and that's a question i'm very interested in, in teasing out um so uh we were learning about those detectors uh for dark matter uh with the xenon gas in them that are like buried really deep and shielded kind of against everything i'm um, hoping that dark matter uh will i guess fly in and interact with the gas that's in um the detector and that assumes that the particle can um interact with that gas so my question is if it can interact with matter and that would cause it to be able to be seen in these detectors, but then on the other hand, it's shielded against any particles from going into the detector. And these might be like lower energy or high energy, whatever particles that we've yet to see interact with anything. Would all that shielding not make those detectors kind of just not see anything, especially if we really have never seen these particles interact with anything? Yeah, no, I, that's, that's a very interesting question. So like there's been this huge program essentially that's been going since the 80s that, that are building on the type of detectors you've, you've said. And, and what we heard about in the public lecture yesterday was that these instruments are now becoming gigantic, like multi-ton um, uh, instruments of xenon that are looking for these types of states. And, and so far they, they haven't seen anything. So you, you can ask about um, uh, the, the various reasons about why that might be. It's still... One thing to note is that what a lot of these part these instruments are looking for are dark matter particles that are around the mass of um, uh, the proton, and, and there's the reason for this is that we might think that dark matter isn't super different or unrelated to the particles we know about. So this gives some motivation that it, it, it could end up being a somewhat similar mass state. Um, but what we do know is we know how much dark matter mass is out in the universe because that's what interacts gravitationally. So if we know the mass of an individual dark matter particle and we know how much mass density is out there, we can determine how many particles there are around. So it turns out that if the dark matter is about a proton mass, there should be all around us about one dark matter particle per centimeter cubed. So it's actually not that rare, it, it, it's very common. 
Uh, and so what's happening is that for these, these giant xenon detectors, for the, the masses that they're looking at, actually they're awash in a, in a like very, very um, a, a dense stream of these dark matter particles flying through them all the time. Uh, and yet actually without our current estimates is that the, the rate at which would interact with regular states is so low um, uh, that even with this, this huge thing, it's an extremely rare event that you might get um, uh, one, one state going through. So because of the, at the, the level of interactions we're looking at are so weak, getting it, the dark matter into the detector isn't a problem. There's actually tons of it going through. It's just even then it's still very rare. However, to build a little bit upon what you're saying, you could ask that you, people have been actually thinking about this recently, that maybe we're on the wrong track with this. And actually there's been these thoughts that what if dark matter actually interacts really strongly, then that would also explain why we never saw it for the exact reason you said, because it, it never would have got through um, uh, the earth. In fact, actually it might not even get through the atmosphere if it, if it interacts strongly enough. And so there are parts of parameter space or like the, the, the possibilities for what dark matter could be that we haven't probed. And one way of doing this is putting one of these detectors on a balloon and sending it up just to see if we see any hits. So people are thinking about the exact questions that you asked at the moment, just trying to think creatively about, well, why might it not be? And it's not just that the, the cross-section, the, the interaction strength could be weaker, it could actually be stronger. Uh, and that's the reason we haven't seen it. So it's a really interesting question. Um, well, I guess um, I can follow that up with, uh, if you, if, like, for example, the way that you're thinking about it right now, or people are thinking about it right now is incorrect. Um, and you never see it in a xenon detector or anything like that. But you do see the effect of dark matter. So you, you can observe it, uh, like with how it's affecting gravity. What other kind of pieces of evidence would be enough to prove it, its existence? Like what else would you be looking for? Because you know, something's there. But what like would be kind of like we've found dark matter help you understand it a lot better if these detectors don't work? Yeah, so uh, uh, there are various levels at which we, we, we will claim that we've resolved this mystery, but maybe just to tell you what I would want the end goal to be. Um, so if you haven't looked this up, there's this um, amazing um, resource called the Particle Data Group, which is the Encyclopedia of Particles. So you can look this up. It's a free resource on the internet, uh, and you can go there and you can, you can look up your favorite particle, the, 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 um, the pion or the, or the proton or the neutron, and it tells you everything in more detail than you ever want about this particle, like its mass, all the interactions it has, how it can decay, everything. I would want an entry for dark matter in the particle data group book. I would want to know what its mass is. I would want to know how well it can interact with these things. And getting all of these things down in detail is like the end game. And there'll be some, but there's going to be some continuum in between where we start to see the first hints of it interacting somewhere, or we, we start to see the first uh, uh, um, uh, breakdowns of some other you know, standard prediction we have that is very convincing evidence that dark matter is behaving like a particle. Uh, but I know what the end goal looks like. I, I think as a community, there'll be huge amounts of debate um, as we go through the, these intermediate periods. Like the, the field as a whole is very skeptical. People have claimed they've discovered dark matter many, many times. And I would say so far, none of these have, have, have stood um, uh, the test of time. But I can also say as, as soon as any of these are discovered, people are intensely critical. So that can't be right. You forgot this, you forgot that. This is what we're always worried about. But one of these, the eventual discovery will also look like this. Someone will, will propose this forward and say, I think I found dark matter. Everyone will say, no, 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 no. But then eventually people say, did you check this? And I'm like, yeah, we checked this. Or what about that? Well, okay, we thought about this. Or, we didn't think about this, but once we added it, it doesn't change the story. I mean, it's going to progress something like this. Um, and then eventually there'll be some convincing announcement. Probably someone wins a Nobel Prize and maybe it makes some newspapers. Uh, but for me, it'll be a very happy day. Yeah.
I have a semi-complex about other particles in your uh, about other particle nature. If we have time, of course, I, I certainly have time. Yeah, great. So, a proton and antiproton, when they interact with each other, they annihilate each other into pure energy, and they're made out of pure energy. So it recycles back over, and we assume that our universe is it was begun with a lot of normal matter and then a bunch of antimatter, but there's just more normal matter than antimatter. Do protons interact with anti-electrons or anti-neutrons? Good, yeah. No, I, I think you're asking some really interesting questions there and there's, there's a few parts to break down, but just to answer the, the, the concrete thing at, at the end, like do protons interact with anti-electrons? Um, the answer is absolutely yes. And I can tell you about one way that they interact. The proton has a positive charge. The electron has a negative charge, but the anti-particle, it, it's flips all of the, the, the numbers that we assign to this. So the, the, the positron, as we call it, also has a positive charge. Um, so if a proton and a positron come near each other, they'll repel each other by the electromagnetic force that, 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 that they experience. So absolutely, these two particles um, can, can talk to each other. And um, we, we've seen this in many experiments that the positron has been known about for, for a long, long time now. Um, but yeah, to get, I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a really interesting question um, uh, about like what, what's happening in the early universe uh, about all of this. But like one of the fundamental things that we know we expect to be happening early on is that there's this constant wash between energy and matter and energy and matter for the exact reasons that you were describing. Um, for when a proton meets an antiproton or when an electron meets an anti-electron, they annihilate into light. Then the light particles can to come together and produce uh, um, uh, electrons and positrons. And this is what happened for a large portion the early universe was this very hot, uh, dense plasma where these processes were going on violently. And then eventually it cooled down to the point where the um, uh, the energy, but what essentially that cooling down means is you've got a lower energy. And so that means that the, 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 um, the, the uh, photons could no longer have enough energy to produce a proton and an antiproton, for example. Uh, and so at these sorts of energy scales, these sorts of processes stop, and then eventually you end up getting the structure that we have. But why out of that picture that treats the proton and the antiproton the same, do we end up with more protons than antiprotons? The truth is we don't know. Um, and this is another one of these big unanswered questions in physics about exactly why we didn't just end up all being annihilated away because there was the same amount of one over the other. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting and open problem. That's really all that we have time for. This is Radio Physics, um, a collaboration of Aspen Center for Physics and KDNK Radio. And I'd love to encourage any listeners who have an interest in science and especially physics to give me a call or send me an email. Thank you and goodbye.